0: Chris Jansen, welcome to the End Evil Podcast. It's Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific, here for another show. Um, This week we're going to talk about greed. The End Evil Podcast is dedicated to the book, The End of All Evil, by Jeremy Locke. This podcast is also um, in tribute and dedicated to Mark Passio of What on Earth is Happening, the primary inspiration for the show. The reason for the show is that the world around us, humans around us, are infected with evil at all levels. Evil is the primary force that seems to be driving things in our world, in our existence right now. And it's time to change that. So this show is for those of you who are brave enough to care for those who care about truth, for people who are interested and willing to fight for freedom, and those who seem to understand that the path towards changing things and making the world a better place without evil involves people like you and I working on ourselves and helping others around us. On an individual level, we can change things. It involves taking the initiative. So today we're going to look at one aspect of our reality In our personal lives Something that we can work on Something that we can deal with And that is the subject of money And greed And the primary question That I thought about for this show Is, is money evil? What do you think? Do you think money is evil? Well, I'm not going to say that's necessarily the case But I'm going to start off with a quote From Jeremy Locke From the book the end of all evil. I'll go ahead and read that to you right now. Take a look at generic at a generic historical example of the pattern of tyranny. A rogue thug gathers together a band of men to extort money from the people nearby where he lives. In his success, he plunders massive amounts of money and grows his gang into an army. He successfully kills the previous officers of law of and enforcement. And or subverts them through stealth. Knowing that he can plunder more value in the long term if he leaves his victims alive, he implements attacks upon everyone in his range of influence. He draws borders. He gives decrees. Importantly, he promises his victims that he will protect them from all other thugs. His victims slowly become accustomed to his will and his lies. The people become afraid, if they hear their neighbors' talk of escaping the taxes and cruelty. Soon they actively support the regime by targeting all the treasonous speech and turning in deviance to police. Originally called criminal, the thug is now called authority. He's called law and order. That's Jeremy Locke from The End of All Evil. So the same p- pattern we've seen over and over through history, the same pattern repeating itself, that we see all through political groups is just the process of one gangster, one thug taking over where the other one left off. Using thievery, stealing from others in the form of taxes, they try to legitimize their robbery, and it always ends up the same. It's an authoritarian situation, and those of us who are honest, caring people get, shuffled to the bottom of the deck, and get given the lowest card. How do we change this dynamic? Well, one part of it is to recognize that the dynamic exists and that it's repeating. And that's a hard thing to get through to folks these days because of whatever you want to call it, cognitive dissonance, maybe whatever they're being sprayed with in the chemtrails and whatever's being put in the food and the water and the propaganda on the television and the movies and the information being funneled into brains through um school indoctrination. All these processes have filled up the brains of people to a point where they have a hard time accepting the fact that they're in slavery. And this situation I talked about in a f- past episode called the slave grind, and you can look that up on Life. What I talk about in the slave grind is how our jobs kind of like our one aspect of the situation that keeps us trapped. But today we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the more overarching problem, the biggest religion of all, the religion of money. I'm going to cut to a little clip here, a little introductory clip. We're going to learn a little bit today about banks and the Federal Reserve. And this is just one particular website I came across. Um, you can look up Cold Fusion was the name of the YouTube channel where I found this video. it's And I typed in the question, what is fractional reserve banking? So if you haven't heard of fractional reserve banking, this is a good um, short little intro, little some bits and pieces here of information I'm gonna share with you. Here we go.
1: Time for a new business model. Hornbrokers started to give credit to businessmen, while Genoese merchants developed cashless payments. Networks of banks spread all over Europe, handing out credit even to the church or European kings. What about today? In a nutshell, banks are in the risk management business. This is a simplified version of the way it works people keep their money in banks and receive a small amount of interest. The bank takes this money and lends it out at much higher interest rates. It's a calculated risk because some of the lenders will default on their credit. This process is essential for our economic system because it provides resources for people to buy things like houses or for industry to expand their businesses and grow. So banks take funds that are unused by savers and turn them into funds society can use to do stuff. Other sources of income for banks include accepting saving deposits, the credit card business, buying and selling currencies, custodian business and cash management services. The main problem with banks nowadays is that a lot of them have abandoned their traditional role as providers of long-term financial products in favor of short-term gains that carry much higher risks. During the financial boom, most major banks adopted financial constructs that were barely comprehensible and did their own trading in a bid to make fast money and earn their executives and traders millions in bonuses. This was nothing short of gambling and damaged whole economies and societies. Like back in 2008, when banks like Lehman Brothers gave credit to basically anyone who wanted to buy a house and thereby put the bank in an extremely dangerous risk position. This led to the collapse of the housing market in the US and parts of Europe, causing stock prices to plummet, which eventually led to a global banking crisis and one of the largest financial crises in history. Hundreds of billions of dollars just evaporated. Millions of people lost their jobs and lots of money. Most of the world's major banks had to pay billions in fines, and bankers became some of the least trusted professionals. The US government and the European Union had to put together huge bailout packages to purchase bad assets and stop the banks from going bankrupt. New regulations were put into force to govern the banking business. Compulsory bank emergency funds were enforced to absorb shocks in the event of another financial crisis. But other pieces of tough new legislation were successfully blocked by the banking lobby. Today other models
0: So that was just a quick little intro to some ideas about banking. I thought it'd be fun to have a fun little video clip with some cartoons on it just to make things a little more entertaining but um, I related to that video when it started talking about the crash of 2008 in 2008. I was affected by that crash. I had bought a house in 2005. The first time I ever tried to buy a house, people convinced me that it was a great way to make a little money using your sweat equity, and since I knew how to build things and repair a home, I thought it was great. So I put all my life savings into repairing and rebuilding a home, and then I was about to sell that home, um, and it was up in value. And that was right in 2008 when everything tanked. And um, I lost out big time, and there was no one there to bail me out, right? Of course not, because that's not how it works. The bailouts and securities come for these big, giant entities. These banking um, things are so huge that they can threaten um, everyone in the world if they fail, that people are so afraid of this failure that they'll do anything to keep them afloat, even if it is made of nothing. So to get back to the original question, is money evil? Um, uh, My reply would be no, money is not evil. Money itself, in its purest form, you know, um, is a way of trading, a way of exchanging our energy and our time. However, in the current form, fractional banking and using the Federal Reserve, it is 100% evil because it's a form of stealing, it's a crime, and it's being done to uh, manipulate your average person. And that's why in situations like where there's an uh, economical collapse, normal normal hardworking people that saved their money and busted their butt lose out, and rich tycoons that are involved in the banking industry can double their money overnight. And by the way, in 2020... People that made lots of money are people that are owning patents on sicknesses and using that, their knowledge of uh, what's about to happen in the world to make them lots of money. People like Bill Gates, who've been predicting a pandemic, are perfect in in line, ready there to scoop up all the money when what they've been planning actually comes about to fruition. But that's a little bit of a tangent. Let's get back to the slideshow. Um, so here's what I've been thinking about. Just some questions in my head. What I'm trying to do with End Evil Podcast is to bring things home, is to bring things to you and I. What can we actually do to end evil in our life, in our day-to-day um, exchanges? And that starts with analyzing what we do with our time and our money and our energy. So what determining factors dictate your choices in your daily life? Um, and some of the things that popped up in my head when I asked that question were feelings. Sometimes we make choices in day to day life based on how we feel, you know, we might do something fun or not, depending on how great of a mood we're in. We might do something challenging. Also, if we're, you know, feeling tired and sluggish, you might not want to do anything. So, okay, we got our feelings on that's one thing. We got our needs and desires, okay, our base needs, water, food, shelter, we need these things. That's going to determine, um, you know, it's time to go shopping, we're out of food in the house, these type of basic things. And then you figure beyond that, our desires, things we call needs, but are not always things we actually need. So, you know, we have, that's a thin line. And I think a lot of us think of things as needs that are more desires, but... Nevertheless, these are some more of the determining factors, right? Our needs and desires. And then our morals. We have this belief structure in our mind, and then we base a lot of our decisions, even if we don't consciously think about each one, off of this structure that's in our mind of what's right and wrong. And that's why it's important to have these discussions and redefine what is right, what is wrong. Right is an action that does not cause harm. Okay, so stealing is causing harm. Lying is causing harm. So if you're stealing or lying, you're doing it wrong. So the way money is used in our society that involves stealing, like taxes, that's wrong. Because that's doing harm to others. And that's also destroying people's freedom. Evil is the destruction of freedom. As we love to shout and repeat on the End Evil podcast. Evil is the destruction of freedom. Just say that a thousand times everywhere you go. Maybe people will start to get it. Okay, what other determining determining factors? We got our loved ones. Most people, if you ask them what's the most important thing to you, will say um, their family or, or they'll say um, success. But uh, most people will say their family is the most important thing to them. So that should be one of the underlying determining factors on why we do things on a day-to-day basis. And then you kind of got your overall logic and strategy, lifetime goals, You know what you're trying to do, what makes sense in the moment. So I was just kind of trying to think of some of the things that we might think of when we're trying to understand how we're making these little decisions every day that guide what we purchase, where we go, where we spend our time, where we spend our energy. But as you see in the background, there's an underlying sheet of green that that actually affects all these choices. And so what I'm hoping to get you to do is to start analyzing how many of these things we're discussing here, your feelings, your needs, your your moral choices, how many of them get affected by how much money you have. Think about a day-to-day decision. Should I go to the store and buy something? What do I want right now? A lot of these decisions are based on money. In fact, all of them are based on money to some extent. And depending on how strong your will is, depending on how strong your desires are, and depending on how strong your morality is, you may or may not make the right decision. You may make decisions based more on whether you have the money or whether you feel the pressure of spending the money. And then there's others who have feel like they have plenty of money and it's not a problem. I don't know many of those people myself, but apparently these people exist And I really don't know what's going on with them and what type of morals they have. But I would suggest that for the most part, to a large extent, many of the people that have that much money have already um, lost some of their soul in terms of their moral choices in order to get that money. That's very common. Not across the board, not 100%, but more often than not. um, Vast wealth is centered around people that don't make moral choices and it makes it easier for them to make money. And that's one of the important concepts that I wanted to try to get across the board today is that how money is so intertwined with greed in our society and also with bad morals. And that's acceptable in our society because success is a bigger ideal in the American dream than good morals. You don't say, be a great American, have good morals. No, they say, be successful, right? So this is ingrained in the very fabric of the way we think of things. <clears throat> Deep down, from the, from the time we've been to school, indoctrinated with this idea that money is the end-all goal. And this is what we need to work on. Okay, I'm going to play you another little clip. There's a few sections of this clip that I took from some work from James Corbett. He's an excellent activist, been working on this stuff for many years. I recommend checking out James Corbett and his Century of Enslavement, but that takes, you know, it's a good hour-long show, so I'm just going to show you a few little clips today to kind of give you some taste of what's in that and to give us some more subject for discussion and thought for this week on the subject.
1: The Federal Reserve also promotes the safety and soundness of the institutions where we do our banking. It ensures that the mechanisms by which we make payments, whether by cash, check, or electronic means, operate smoothly and efficiently, and in its fiscal role, acts as the banker for the United States government. These duties comprise the major responsibilities of our central bank,
2: But in order to really understand the Federal Reserve, we must first understand its origins and context. We must, then known as the Currency Bill, was signed into law after passing the House and Senate in late December 1913. The New York Times of Christmas Eve 1913 described the festive scene. The Christmas spirit pervaded the gathering. While the ceremony was a little less impressive than that of the signing of the Tariff Act on October 3rd last in the same room, the spectators were much more enthusiastic and seized every occasion to applaud. There in the White House that fateful December evening, President Wilson signed away the last veneer of control over the American money supply to a cartel, a well-organized gang of crooks, so successful, so cunning, so well-hidden, that even now, a century later, few know of its existence, let alone the details of its operations. But those details have been openly admitted for decades. Of course, just as we have been taught to find economics boring, we have been taught that this story is boring. This is the way the Federal Reserve itself tells it. The United States was facing severe
1: financial problems. At the turn of the century, most banks were issuing their own currency, called banknotes. The trouble was, currency that was good in one state was sometimes worthless in another. People began to lose confidence in their money, since it was only as sound as the bank that issued it. Fearful that their bank might go out of business, they rushed to exchange their banknotes for gold or silver. By attempting to do so, they created the Panic of
2: 1907. During the Panic, people... So, the
0: Panic of 1907... Um, before the panic of 1907, I just wanted to mention that I've done some research on in the past and central banking was not a brand new thing in the early 1900s. Apparently there was a form of central banking that had happened, um, previously, probably multiple times, but, um, there was associated with the Crusades and, the um, who are the other guys that were the first, um, had the first central bank. It's I'm blanking that on it now. Anyway, the point is the federal reserve was, um, put together by these huge banking rich, wealthy folks who had these secret meetings. We'll get a little more into that with the whole Jekyll Island thing. If you haven't learned about that, it's something to get into. It's very interesting. Um, Edward Griffin has a Griffin has a um, movie and a book called The Creature of Jekyll Island, which goes into great detail on this. And there's plenty of other places. James Corbett's um, information also covers Jekyll Island and the way these secretive meetings happened and the way this Federal Reserve was brought into place and then brought back into place in this country. It's an interesting story. I did a little research for this particular episode. And, um, you know, it was very interesting to learn more than I already did. And I encourage you to do the same. And here's something I put together, just a little meme of sorts showing the belief system. And what I'm trying to get at here is the point that, you know, I spent a lot of time in churches myself and with people that go to churches and even in that community of people who claim to be, um, working towards better morality people who claim to be um, trying to make themselves and the world better, their money, money is still making the decisions in these type of places. If you think about any meetings in a church or leadership of a church, they have business meetings and they grapple with the same problems businesses do and they make decisions based on money. It's all based on money. What's not based on money in our society and the way people think? What will you not betray for money? You know, have there been times when your own family have wanted, needed, or hoped for something, and you chose not to help them because of money? How about your hopes? Have you ever betrayed your hopes because you didn't have the money? How about your dreams? Have you ever betrayed your dreams or not followed through with your dreams because you did not have the money? How about your duties? Have you ever sacrificed what you felt to be your duties because you needed to do something else to get money or you felt like you didn't have enough money? Or your morals? Money prohibits you from doing the things that sometimes you know you need to do or want to do to make the world a better place or to help people to be in the right place at the right time. Oftentimes, this huge obstacle of money will um, divert your attention or keep you bound or prohibited. So I'm going to play you another little clip. This is also from James Corbett's Century of Enslavement. Here we go.
2: And is granted the power to loan money that it creates out of thin air to the government. The 20-year bank charter is due to expire in 1836, but still in his first term, President Andrew Jackson has already vowed to let it die prior to renewal. Believing that Jackson won't risk his chance for re-election in 1832 on the issue, the bankers forward a bill to renew the bank's charter in July of that year, four years ahead of schedule. Remarkably, Jackson vetoes the renewal charter and stakes his re-election on the people's support of his move. In his veto message, Jackson writes in no uncertain terms about his opposition to the bank. Whatever interest or influence whether public or private, has given birth to this act, it cannot be found either in the wishes or necessities of the executive department, by which present action is deemed premature, and the powers confirmed upon its agent not only unnecessary, but dangerous to the government and country. It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes.
3: on. I was impressed by
0: this little history lesson. I did not know about that. Uh, Jackson um, repealing the act and shutting down the Fed back in those days. I didn't know that story. And, and a very interesting part of that story is that and I thought it was going to be in that clip. Maybe it's in another one I'm going to share. Is He actually went as far as after getting rid of central, the idea of central banking actually got to the point where no money was owed and the United States was at even, you know, like didn't owe any money at all. And and so, you know, after that came all this panic, a financial panic. But there was a point at which, you know, all debts were paid. So that goes to show that is possible. Now, whether Jackson was really... Um, fighting against the bankers or whether it was all some sort of political maneuver, I don't know. I would have to do more research, but it's very little, um very interesting subject to get into, and I would challenge you to look into it more yourself. But for the case of you and I, it's important just to kind of get back to morality and understanding what's going on in the bigger picture, that there's this manipulation going on. There's been, through history, these people who have maneuvered with the power of money and, and deciding who has control of money and who can control the flow of money. And that's what you find out when you look into this history of the panics and the run on the banks is that all of a sudden it was, um, it was asking about trust. Many banks used to be called trust, bank and trust. And the trust breaks down when people show up to get their money out and the bank says it doesn't have the money. But based on the simple definition of what fractional banking is, that um, you know they can only ever really have a very small percentage. At one time, it was they were supposed to keep ten percent and they could lend out ninety percent, and that has been changed recently. In fact, now it seems in two thousand twenty, there's no um, they don't have to hold any percent at all. I don't think, but there was some major change made to that effect that I read about in my research. But here's the questions I came up with you you know, to think this about. Where does money come from? Who owns the money? Who or what determines the worth or value? And who pays to have the money printed? Just a few questions off the top of my mind. Questions that will never be asked in school. Questions that you just don't hear most of life. You know, we just think of money as such a basic, it's always been there, and it's always going to be there type of thing, but when you look through history, there's um, been all kinds of fluctuations with money, and all of a sudden, in some countries, overnight, money's value can go down to nothing and become worth nothing. People are carrying around wheelbarrows of pennies to buy a jug of milk or something like that. So... If you're paying taxes, if this money is being taken from you, your hard work and energy and labor being put into these taxes, and then these taxes are used what to print the money? Who who pays for the actual printing and the printing machines and all the security around um, this whole process that keeps it, the money safe? You know who pays for all that out of your taxes, right? So it's stolen money that's being used to make more money that's being used then in in the role of these banks to um, be lent out at um, nine times what it was originally started out as. In other words, you're making up nine things from one thing. So if I were a banker, that means I would just have $1, and then if you came up to borrow money from me, I could say that I had $9, just like that. And it actually gets much more extreme from that if you look deeper into it. But the whole idea of the fiat money system is a scam. And I did um, a past presentation last month called The Divided State of Scam-America, in which I talked about some of the many scams around us. And I didn't get into one of this one, one of the biggest scams of all, which is the scam of money and the Fed. So... Um, Let me look at my notes here because I definitely had some notes I wanted to share on the subject. And now I'm having a little trouble managing my screen so I can find those notes. There we go. Where are we at? Oops. Got things all screwed up now. Hmm. Wow. Anyway, here we have a picture with The central bankers and um, in the little square here, we have Rothschild Bank of London, Rothschild Bank of Berlin, Warburg Bank of Hamburg, Warburg Bank of Amsterdam, Lazard Brothers of Paris, Israel Moses, Self Banks of Italy, Chase Manhattan Bank of New York, Goldman Sachs of New York, Lehman Brothers of New York, and the Loon Loeb Bank of New York. Basically, who, who runs things in the money scene? The owners of the currency, the owners of the world and the owners of, of everybody, basically. This is a huge part of why we live in a situation of slavery, because this con-scam system is allowed to continue, and people haven't caught on to it and stopped, put a stop to it. They continue to believe in it. Remember when I talked about belief system, and I showed the dollar bills as the central altar of the church? Well, that is the religion of where we live. It's the religion of money. And it is a huge part of what's holding us back from having, um, from making moral decisions because we have so many bills to pay. And we're at the very bottom of the pyramid. And those at the top are manipulating money and they own the currency itself. And therefore, things like, um, inflation that can keep creeping up and creeping up on us regular folks, you got people in the world that are unaffected by these problems because they own the money itself, and which is called currency, which is kind of like a water thing. It's the very water we live in. It's the current we travel in. So all of our energy is being sort of focused into these bills. And when you look on the bill, dollar bill itself, it's full of this occult symbolism, which has meaning that most people have not thought that much about. But the pyramid itself is an interesting symbol. And I often think of us as bricks that are trapped in the bottom of this pyramid. And think about when you take bricks and you stack them on top of each other, what happens to the bottom ones is they get the most pressure. And so that's what you see in the situation the world we live in. Your average regular person with good ideals and hopes is getting... um This pressure from above to do things as they're told, to do things as the way you're supposed to do them, and to fit into these little boxes, these little bricks, in order to um, behave as the rulers want people to behave. Um, You know, if you take the time and look into these things, there are plenty of presenters and information out there, like I've been talking about James Corbett's a great one. I would also recommend Richard Grove. He does a great, if you actually want to look into who these people are and the families and how they're connected, look into the work of someone like Richard Grove and all that information can be discovered. It's not a secret. There's been plenty of books written. there have been plenty of people that are connected to these powerful people that it's like maybe they like to brag at a certain point. Maybe every once in a while they do have some hint of uh, desire to share truth with the world. Um, Who knows why or how their motivations are to write these books, but they do. It happens. The information gets out there. The truth can never be completely obscured and hidden forever. Eventually, it gets out there. So you can find it is the point I'm trying to make. Um, Check out Grand Theft World. That runs every Sunday evening. That's Richard Grove's production. And you can find out more information about Who runs the world and who these people are, who these bankers are? That information exists. It can be tracked down. They're not really trying to keep themselves completely hidden. I mean, as much as they can, but they don't. They're there. They um, make their statements, and their statements get written down just like everyone else, and they can be discovered. However, we really, you and I, don't have the power to track these people down or do anything about their maneuvers because they're much more powerful in this world than you are. But what we can do is empower ourselves and understand what's going on and communicate with one another and learn to communicate with others that this is the situation, and we can break it down in little pieces so people can understand it. That's what I'm attempting to do here. So greed ties into all this so much. Greed being accepted and a way of doing things and um, trumping moral decisions. So I think that's a takeaway we can all take into our next week is just look, just observe your thought process in day-to-day actions and things you experience and ask yourself, is this truly, um, am I making these decisions because it's the moral right thing to do or am I making these decisions because it's the best thing to do financially? And challenge yourself on that. If more people do that, then we'll have a more moral world, and evil can diminish. But it takes the willpower and the initiative to try to get there. Tell the American okay, people. Okay, this is another clip. Hold to on whom a you land- I messed up. I'm gonna go back. Let's try that. Hold on a second here.
1: tell the American people to whom you lent $2.2 trillion of their dollars. Will you tell us who got that money and what the terms are of those agreements? Hundreds and hundreds of
0: banks. Any bank or that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount... We tell us who they are?
3: No. In an interview with Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, he makes the stunning assertion that conducting a full audit of the Federal Reserve, something never before done in its 100-year history is a line that we don't want to cross. To be denied full transparency of these transactions after U.S. taxpayers contributed over $16 trillion to these bailouts and loans is unthinkable and unconstitutional. It is our right as American citizens to know where our money is being spent. It's very ironic that if you don't give the IRS full transparency with your finances, you go to jail. But if you're a private organization of elite bankers that controls the money supply of a country, you're free to do as you please without full oversight. This private organization is arrogant in the fact that the same accounting laws that apply to the rest of America do not apply to them.
2: There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take.
3: Their control appears to be unlimited, and 2008 is the most recent example of how much power the Fed actually has on our country.
1: Many of us were told in private conversations that if we voted against this bill on Monday, that the sky would fall, the market would drop two or 3,000 points the first day, another couple thousand the second day. And a few members were even told that there would be martial law in America
3: if we voted no. That's what I call fear-mongering. The elite banking institutions took trillions of dollars worth of risk and when they lost their bets, they threatened politicians to use taxpayer money to bail them out or else we would face an Armageddon type of scenario. This is
0: And that is the type of power that is welded, wielded by the bankers in this world. And you're going to try to imagine that these people are not connected to one another, that they're not having secret meetings, that they're not figuring out ways to more and more fleece the average person for money. This is a cool, um, I originally heard this from Freeman Fly on his podcast, Freeman TV, but um, there's other presenters who have pointed this out. If you take a close look at the money that's being printed out, it looks exactly like Monopoly money, the same coloring and everything is that just a coincidence or is it um, sort of like sort of like um, a threat or not a threat but um, it's like they're laughing at us in a way. It's like a joke to the rich elite of the world, these families we know we know that their money has been consolidated to the very few of the world. In the beginning of the show, I was showing some pictures, and you see, um, you can look it up for yourself um, on websites, who are the most richest people in the world, and you find a long list of who these people are. Um, which reminds me, I wanted to go back to that last slide. I, sh- I shared with you that video which I played with um, that started with Bernie Sanders. That was... Um, Called The Biggest Scam in the History of Mankind Explained. It's a YouTube video. And I found some of this information and these images that I'm sharing here on World Truth TV. Uh, who really owns the Federal Reserve? So it's a fun question to type into the internet and see what you get. There's a lot of great information out there. I'd recommend doing some searching on your own, do some thinking about it you know, you got to really wonder about this money situation. If they can just sort of turn up the money or turn down the money, the value of the money at any time, what does it really actually stand for? You know, at one time there was this gold standard and every, you know, at the time when they described in the video we watched before, people running to the banks and trying to trade their money for gold or silver. So at that time it was not quite as a, immoral situation the money supposedly had value that you know the same amount there was a time when gold claims i think that was one of the early banknotes were formed because you'd go find your gold and you bring it to um a sacramento bank if you're up here in the northern california hills finding gold and they would hold your gold in the bank for you and they would give you notes And you could use those notes anywhere around because people knew that the bank actually had the gold. But that system has been long left behind. And we are now just, this is all just based on belief. And it's trusting the most untrustworthy people in the world. And that is a ridiculous way to do business. So um, I looked up End the Fed. I knew, remember, that's something that Mark Passio talked about. He was part of groups called End the Fed. You can still look it up on the Internet. I found one particular site called gemstatepatriot.com, and they had top five reasons to end the Fed from their point of view. Number one, it devalues our currency. Number two, it slows economic growth. Number three, it has no transparency. Number four, the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional. Number five, it is a giant step towards implementing world government. I'll say, so that is, um, you know, a few reasons for your average person. But more importantly, anything that is destroying freedom, anything that is taking away your energy, is evil, and that's the reason right there alone to end the Fed. We could start. Um, one thing people are doing is learning about digital coins and Bitcoin. Maybe there's some possibilities there. I don't think it's truly the answer because until we solve the problem of morality. In understanding why things are right and wrong, then all it has to do is for the digital coins to do the same thing that the Fed did. And um, we'll go through this whole same problem again if people still don't understand the actual dynamic of how things are working or not working in terms of the result and what we experience. If people are doing bad behavior, in other words, stealing, taking from other people, forcing, coercing, we're going to have... Um, the outcome is going to be a bad situation. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be people who are trying to do the right thing, getting stomped on, and your average normal person feeling like they're trapped and they can't get out of the situation they're in. And they're stuck in a rat, in a wheel, you know, just going around and around like a rat. So this is interesting. I looked up um, what I was thinking about. I ended up on the word prohibition. And I'm going to share with you a little information about prohibition. But the reason I came across this word to begin with was because I was thinking about different ways um, that money is created and money is used. And I got to thinking about jail because um, I've always heard that in jail, instead of using money, they use cigarettes. I've also heard that, um, like, what do you call black market sales around the world, sometimes they'll use paintings like an expensive painting rather than money because you can, um, in a smaller package hand over a huge amount of money. So, um, the idea here being that money is not necessarily these bills that we're used to seeing that look like monopoly money. There's lots of different forms of money and we don't necessarily have to use the one that's being used right now. Look what happens in jail. So I looked this up and what I found was really interesting. Um, in jail, okay, I need to scroll down because right now I'm looking at um, information about the derivation of prohibition. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, this came from the dailybeast.com. With cigarettes banned in most prisons, gangs shift from drugs to smokes. The name of the article is Prohibition, and that's what got me going on this idea of prohibition. This is by Seth Ferranti. Um... As this is back in 2013, so this isn't like brand new news, but it was new to me. I found this very interesting, so I'm going to share it with you. Okay, I'll go ahead and read this to you. As ah, um, oh, come on, I accidentally switched my page or something. Here we go. There we go. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. There we go. The article begins, As tobacco bans have spread across prisons nationwide, cigarettes have grown into a contraband item of choice, rivaling illegal and illicit drugs in their availability and profitability on the black market. With tobacco products now banned by the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the majority of state prison systems, the price of a single Marlboro inside now reaches $20.00. A policy intended to produce health benefits and reduce fire risk has created a cash cow for prison gangs like the Mexican Mafia and the Aryan Brotherhood, and the guards willing to work with them. By utilizing the smuggling methods developed to bring in heroin and other drugs, and aided by the ease of purchasing cigarettes on the outside, the gangs ensure prisoners can get a smoke anytime they want, if they are willing to pay the price. A pack of Newports or Camels can cost $200, while a pouch of rolling tobacco like Bugler, which sells for a couple of dollars in the free world, can earn an enterprising inmate hundreds. Quote, When I first came into the feds in the 90s, cigarettes were used as money, a prisoner tells the Daily Beast. Let's say you want a piece of chicken. That was one pack. Some weed or hooch to get you lit might set you back two or three cartons. That was how we did business. With generic brand cigarettes sold in the commissary for about a dollar each, packs were an effective unit of currency. But when they outlawed tobacco in 2004, we started using stamps as money in here. Now, if I want to buy a Marlboro or a Newport to smoke, it's like three books of stamps. A book of 20 uh, stamps sells for $9 on the, in the commissary. Anyway, that doesn't matter. The point is that now they started using stamps. So the type of money that was used was dependent on the laws. And this is an important um, concept that stuck out for me, and that's why I wanted to share that. In jail was a place where we could see where the belief system changed, but before the belief system changed, the law changed. So the legislation prohibited um, the cigarettes being sold, in the normal store inside of the jail. Now, all of a sudden, it's still, it's creating this whole black market inside of jail, which goes to show what we've seen with um, the war on drugs, for instance. They create these laws, which actually creates a black market, which actually creates a way for them to make money, huge amounts of money. And when I say them, the insiders are always going to be the ones that make the money because they're the same ones that can push the laws and the legislation. Why wouldn't they if they can and they don't have morals because they've already sold their soul because that's how they got rich in the first place or they were born into these families which are run by um, psychopathic people who are willing to do whatever they have to to have control over their fellow human being. Those of you who don't want to believe that such a thing exists um, hopefully are long gone by now I seriously doubt anyone watching this show or listening to the show still doesn't understand that there are people in the world that are like this. It's just the way things are. So um, it's sort of a tangent talking about prohibition in the United States, but I found it to be a very interesting thing that, you know, I was thinking about the ban of alcohol and how a lot of money was made during that period of time, too. Um, it created this black market. It created this whole um, shift and change in how people went about doing things. And when you think about it now, it seems ridiculous now that alcohol's is um, legal in most states, most all the time, most everywhere, that there was a period of 13 years where it was completely illegal. Which, to me, is pointing back to how silly and stupid laws are in the first place, that they can just shift back and forth like that. and um, But the more important thing being that it's done in many cases in such a way that um, manipulates um, the average person. So another thing that I want to go back to on the idea of prohibition, one of the biggest things that's prohibited in this country that we live in is making your own money. Now that would get you in a lot of trouble. And the reason that is is because the government wants to own all money. Because it wants to own you. That's an important thing to understand. When you really think that through, it's part of what keeps us enslaved. And the derivation of the word prohibition is to hold back, to hinder, or to prevent. So I thought that was pretty interesting that by using these laws, government holds us back, prohibits us from prospering. And using a system like central banking, it makes it easy easy prey for the wolves to just run down and eat the sheep up all day long, anytime, all the time. All they have to do is shift these um, percentages and raise these values, and we're just stuck having to pay for it. Pay, pay, pay all day. Uh, moving on, um, I thought this was interesting. While I was doing that research, I came across this. At one point in history, at the time of prohibition, there was actually a medicinal liquor prescription, just like there's a med- there was a medical marijuana prescription. And many people may not know that such a thing occurred, but I found that very interesting. It said um, um, the website I was looking at was called Alcohol Problems and Solutions, Did Prohibition Work?, and uh, it said people could legally buy liquor with a doctor's prescription, so they quickly developed numerous maladies for which whiskey was the cure. Doctors made the equivalent of over half a billion dollars per year by writing prescriptions for medicinal liquor. The volume of alcohol sold this way was enormous. Prohibitionists were not happy. They proposed legislation to restrict this gaping loophole. But the American Medical Association vigorously opposed the measure. It would be interference with medical practice and the doctor-patient relationship. More important, it would reduce this easy income. So this is, again, you know, what I've lived through in my lifetime with seeing this happen with cannabis. And it's so interesting to look back in history and see the same exact story played out with alcohol and how silly that is all, you know, these Making of these laws and shifting back and forth on what's right. Is it really ever about what's right or was it about what's profitable? That's what you really have to start looking at. A lot of people stood to gain a lot of money from making these legislative changes. And the same thing exists in the fields of, of gas, for instance. If um, laws were not as they are now, we could all be making our own alcohol in our own backyard and using that same alcohol to run our vehicles. And it would be very efficient compared to the way we're doing things now. It'd be very possible to do that. However, laws make that impossible because um, companies that want to own things like exclusively know that if they have a monopoly on... A particular thing like oil or gas, and it can only be made the way they make it, and they're the only ones that have the certified stamp from the government to sell it, then they have a monopoly and they can charge you whatever they want for it. And big surprise, now we're almost up to $5 a gallon on gas. I predicted that at the very beginning of COVID and have been expecting it to happen much sooner, and now here we are um, for oh, well over $4 a gallon here where I'm at in Northern California. And really no surprise to me. So I have quite a bit more I wanted to say today about money and greed. and um, But it looks like I'm getting close to the end of my hour. And today I'm going to quit right at the end of my hour because I have a lot to do this evening. But for those of you who have watched this episode, thanks so much for coming and checking it out. I'm going to continue this subject next week. We're going to talk some more next week about money and greed. And how it affects us in our daily lives and what we can do to begin ending evil. One simple thing you can do is um, get involved. I am looking for anyone and everyone who wants to end evil. I do not want this podcast to be just a solo thing. I'm looking for helpers. I'm looking for um, people that would help with advertising. I'm looking for people that want to help... come up with research and slides for the show. And I would welcome and encourage your help. So contact me, Chris Jansen. You can find me on um, Facebook. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me on Twitch. You can find me on just about any platform. Um, But the easiest way is to go on endevil.life and click on my contact, Chris, and send me an email. Tell me you want to get involved with the Evil podcast. You can almost find um, on endevil.life, there's a donation page. And on there, I would like for you to take a look at the End Evil shirt. Wearing an End Evil t-shirt is a good way to get out in public and make show people what you're all about. Show them right across your shirt. And you never know, um, someone might make a little comment, and that might be an opportunity to make a new friend or recruit a new fellow, um, truth warrior, freedom fighter. So, End Evil Shirt is a great way to advertise what we're all about. And um, I'm not really making much money off the shirts. The idea is to get the shirts out there at this point. So, um, if you want to help the show, share it with your friends, share it with your family, anyone you meet, or get yourself an End Evil Shirt, or contact me, and get involved in being um, part of the show. Help me with some research or some advertising or um, an interview. I like to interview people a lot too. So that's about what I had prepared for today's show. Thanks so much for checking this out. So this week I want you to analyze how you're spending your money and what decisions you're making regarding money and how that's affecting moral choice moral choices in your life in your day-to-day existence if more people go through that process of that inner journey of thinking about consciously about their decisions and whether those decisions are moral guided by moral morality in terms of what's right and wrong or those decisions re- you know based on what they what they want to do with their money and how comfortable they want to be you know that that is the truth the determining factor of what is giving us the result of the existence we're living in so it's a challenge and it's a hope that we can improve as people and do something better with our time and our energy so join me um next week i'll be back every thursday 6 p.m. pacific for end evil podcast We'll be streaming live on the One Great Work Network dot com and on Twitch. And tonight I'm also streaming live on Facebook because YouTube shut me down. Last week I said that you there are fifteen good reasons why you should refuse to wear a mask and YouTube really didn't like that and they gave me a strike on my name. So I've been officially censored by the gremlins and demons at YouTube. And we'll see how long I can last on Facebook by um, sharing simple truths like I've been doing. So that's the end of the show today. Thanks for coming. Have a great day.
3: Make you wanna get
1: your life straight. I'ma introduce the places that I venture to. I get your proof of a hip hop institute. It's the truth. I'm just being hospitable, sitting bull. The chief, I seek the hidden jewels. Some just complain about the status of rap. They say it's average. In fact, they wish the '80s was back. I say everything's everything. Nothing stay the same, and yet it is the same, just giving a different name. Money's all that matters to you. You sniffing cane. You need to uplift your brain. Forget the fame. You say you get power if you get money. How you get those if you just a dummy? Just stay on your toes, man. Stay on your In this toes. world, that's just how it goes, man. In old got to get with the program.
0: With flows, I want to control the whole
1: land. You just got to stay on your toes, man. In
3: this